Good afternoon. What a good day to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to see everybody here. Thanksgiving is coming up, and I know everybody's got turkey on their mind. My husband brought in the turkey. He does the grocery shopping. Thank you, Jesus. He does the grocery shopping for our household, and uh, he brought turkey in, and my, my kids were really excited, and they thought he was going to make it right then, <laughs> and that they were having it for dinner. But it's good to see everybody coming out, because where else can we be the Sunday before Thanksgiving but in the house of the Lord, thanking him for his goodness? Amen. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, um, I don't know if they, they were able to get it up or not. We're going to start in Isaiah forty fifteen, and then we're going to kind of jump, skip, and hop down to 26, verse 26. So if it's easier for you guys, I'm bouncing to watch the screen, that's fine. It says, look. The nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. And then starting at 22, God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is a poetic uh, metaphor comparing God to everything else. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth irrational. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither away. And a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. Who will you compare me to? Who? Is my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He's talking about the heavens. Spoiler alert, it was not evolution. God created the heavens and the earth. He brings out the starry host by number. Have you ever noticed as it's starting to get dark, they don't like all of the stars show up at once. First you see one. My little boy, he'll say, Mommy, there's the moon. Mommy, there's Jupiter. We've been talking about that a lot lately. It may or may not be Jupiter, but he's pointing to it. And then, like, one by one, God calls them out. Next thing you know, there's diamonds across the sky. He calls them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your love. We give you praise and glory and honor, Jesus. We praise your holy name for you are so good. Lord, I pray that you speak through me today. Let me not speak with enticing words of man's wisdom, but only through your Holy Spirit, God. I pray for every heart and soul in this room, God, that we open up our hearts and our minds to hear what you have for us in your word. And I thank you for this opportunity, God, to learn more about you, your word, and your world. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have titled this message, Little Things. And I 
I just want to be clear. I see the irony here <laughs> that I am bringing you the message little things and I stand only five foot tall. <laughs> it's like God said, you know, put it on my heart. I want you to speak about little things. And I'm like, is that a joke? Are you being funny? I get it. I see the irony. Have you ever felt small? Yes, I have felt small. <laughs> Standing next to my own husband, I realize my height. But really, have you been in a room before and you feel small? Have you, if you haven't felt small before, let's read that passage again on Isaiah 40. Because you should feel small when you read about God. But have you ever felt insignificant? Have you ever been feeling like you're invisible or ignored? If the nations are like dust to God, like it says in Isaiah 40, then what is big to him? If he reproduces princes to nothing, then who really matters to him? See, we put a lot of emphasis on power, prestige, and popularity. Oh, she's the whatever. Oh, he's this. You even think about it when you see your little ones. He's going to be a doctor someday. And you put a lot of emphasis on people's popularities, what they do, their power. We put a lot of emphasis on big things. If uh, I had to ask my husband, because this shows you how little I know about celebrities and everything. But if someone like Prince, uh, Prince William were to come in and Kate Middleton to our church today, we would never stop talking about the day that the Prince of England showed up at Bridge of Hope. Am I right? Like, that would be, like, something we talk about until we died. Like, wow. We put a lot of press, uh, po uh, po um, emphasis on the prestige and popularity. But here he says he reduces princes to nothing. So who really matters to him? Do little things really matter to God? So I want to talk about, and follow. if you would follow me for a few minutes, I'm going to talk about little words. We're going to talk about little sin, little humility, and finally, little people. Did you all get your string? I had to make sure that I... Like held it the whole time so I didn't forget to bring up the string because that would have been really funny. You know, you got home like, what was this for? The first step in constructing a bridge over the Niagara Falls Gorge was made supposedly by a 15-year-old American named Holman Walsh. On January 30th, 1848, Holman flew a kite he named Union from one side of the gorge to the other. Someone on the opposite side had caught the kite and tied a stronger string to the end of the kite string. All right. And then Holman pulled it back over, and then the process was repeated with an even stronger string, and then a stronger string. Eventually, it was a, it was a thick rope, and then a thicker rope, and then a cord. Eventually, Homan and his team was able to put a steel cable across the gorge 
that was strong enough to support workers, tools, and materials to build a bridge, and finally, a sturdy bridge over which trains and trucks could easily pass had all been completed, and it all began with one string. The Great Chicago Fire occurred in 1871. Evidently, it was Mrs. O'Leary's cow. The cow twitched her leg, kicked over a lamp, that lamp broke, caught a small wisp of hay on fire. Soon, the whole barn was on fire, and then the fire spread to consume the city of Chicago. Hundreds of people died, millions of dollars in damage, all from a twitching cow. If you read your Bible, you'll see that God seems to really like the small things. It is his specialty to take small things and then turn it into something amazing. Many of the events start out kind of small. Like people we read in the Bible who felt really scared and inadequate, and then God wanted them to step up and be leaders. And then take a really big step forward. There was the boy with his small lunch, five loaves of bread, two fish. But when given to Jesus, he fed 5,000 people with it. That would hardly feed my son. 5,000. Or Gideon, he was from the smallest tribe of Israel. And yet he became a great warrior and a judge of Israel. Bethlehem was just a small town. I think of like... Where I live, I live on the, the line between Dry Ridge and Jonesville. There ain't nothing in Jonesville. <laughs> Jonesville, Kentucky. We have a Facebook page um, or a Facebook group. It says Jonesville Traffic. <laughs> I love it because the, like, you'll, I'll get on there and I'll read the traffic reports for Jonesville and it'll say, like, please tell Mr. Roberts his cows are out. <laughs> I kid you not. And you're like, okay, I'll let Mr. Roberts know next time I go get the mail. You know, it's it's really small town. And I think of that kind of town when I think of Bethlehem. And God chose that kind of town. It'd be like Jonesville being the Jonesville, Kentucky. Nobody even hears of Jonesville, Kentucky. Not even in Grant County unless you think Jonesville, Kentucky. And that's where maybe the king of England, next king of England is born or the next president is born. But this was the savior of the world was in Bethlehem. He seems to really enjoy the beauty of the very small. That's really good news for all of us because most of us aren't really involved in anything really big, spiritually speaking. I mean, most of your lives are probably like mine, and they just kind of revolve around work, family, mealtimes, friends. And there's really nothing earth-shaking or big in that pattern. Not a whole lot of us are going to be like Billy Graham and get the opportunity to impact millions of lives. Most of us are just going about our daily lives. So does God really care about that? Is that really important in the kingdom of God? Or is it only Billy Graham? Is it only the great awakenings that really matter to God? Well, let's find out. And how do we find out what matters to God? How do we find out more about him? We read it in his word. 
So in his word, we see that Jesus really didn't despise the little things. He would be going along a road, and he knows he's getting ready to speak to thousands of people. And yet he'd say, let the little children come to me. And he'd stop, and he'd bless the little children. His disciples stopped him from that. They didn't like that. They no, 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 no. Don't get these youngins out of here. Youngins is not in the Bible. Maybe a new version. I don't know. <laughs> he would say, no. This, this small child is important. Suffer the little children to come to me. If you've got the opportunity or the privilege to uh, watch Pastor Megan back there with the little children, she, like, takes this command personal. She's, she's like, pouring into the children and bringing them to the feet of Jesus. He'd be along the road. He knows he's getting ready to go, like, to the tab, uh, synagogue to have a special time of teaching, and there would be one woman, one woman who needs healing. He'd stop for her. One blind person, he'd stop for him. Jesus did not despise the little things. He actually taught us the importance of just a cold glass of water. He taught us that a cold glass of water given to the least of those whom we encounter is the same as service to himself. It's like you just walked up to, to God himself and gave him a glass of water. He values that. He honors that. So we're going to dive in here. Yeah, that was just the opening. We're gonna, I got more. I want to start with little words. James 3, 5, we learn, even so the tongue is a little member, member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles, just like that twitching cow in Chicago. The tongue, he says, it's a little member, but it's got a lot of power. A misused word can cause a lot of damage. Maybe it's a black guy says something to a white guy or a white guy says something to a, white, a black person. Next thing you know, there's hate crime going on. There's a hate war going on, and there's rioting in the streets. Why? From words, little words being said to one another. The tongue is a very small part of our body when we compare it to something like our hearts, but it can create bad problems as big or worse than a heart attack if not used correctly. A small word can destroy someone and even cause death. Sometimes we utter a careless word of gossip, and someone else is going to seize on that and spread it just like wildfire. Next thing you know, there's a split in the church or in the family, in the city. Big heartache from words. Your words are not little. We underestimate our words. They can bite. They can sting. They have impact. It is said that we speak 7,000 words a day. I know I speak more. We're kind of addicted to words, aren't we? we? We like to hear ourselves talk. We like to be heard. We like to talk to people. And we give little thought to those 7,000 a day words. 
We underestimate those words. But he says in Matthew chapter 12, 36, every little word, every idle word that a man shall speak, they will give account for in the day of judgment. That's scary when you think about not paying attention to the 7,000 that you speak. They shall give account thereof in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. They can take only a few milliseconds to say, but the impact of your words can last forever into eternity. It's serious. Little words are not just little words. Sometimes we look at this sin problem and we say, man, I got this problem with this one little sin I'm just struggling with. And God, that's what I need you to fix. He says, give me your tongue. Because he actually tells us in the Bible that if you put, if he can control your tongue, it's like he put a bit in a horse's mouth. When you have a bit in a horse's mouth, you can control the horse wherever you want it to go. So if we give God our tongue, can he handle that sin problem? He absolutely can. When we hand over our tongue to God, he can control our lives. And I know I've prayed it, well, Lord, I want you to take control of my life. And he says, just give me your mouth. Start there. It's a little member, but it is so powerful. I'm not just talking about curse words and speaking the name of the Lord's name in vain. I'm not sticking with just that. I, I, that's, you know, that's it's got its place, but I'm talking about really giving God your mouth. Where every word is seasoned with God's grace. I'm, I'm preaching to myself as well here. I'm, I, I had a hard time as I was typing this out. I was like, ouch, God. And he's like, I told you to give it to me. Give me your tongue. Seasoned with grace. He tells us to season our words with grace. I want God to season my mouth with grace so that anytime I open my mouth, the only thing the hearer can hear is the Holy Spirit. Anybody hear that? You want that? How different would Thanksgiving look this Thursday if when we met with our families and we got with our friends, we watched our tongues and we spoke with grace. If we gave it over to God but on Wednesday, we prayed, really prayed, God, I want you to take my mouth because tomorrow aunt so-and-so is going to be there or uncle so-and-so, and you know how it goes. My mouth runs away with me. But seasoning it with grease and letting the God of the universe take over your mouth can do so much good. It can save a life. Little words of encouragement and hope, they can turn around a life. Turn it around. Have you ever had someone tell you the phrase, hey, you're looking really good today, and man, that just totally changed your day. That restored hope into your heart instantly. Mark Twain said, you didn't know I was going to quote from him, huh? Mark Twain said, I can live for two months off a good compliment. Who knows what I'm talking about? I, it, my husband doesn't know this, but he gave me a compliment several years ago that I still replay in my mind sometimes. And that just gets me through a day. You know what he said? Remember that time he said that? Man, that made me feel so good. And I pull that right back out, and I think of it, and I'm encouraged. Or someone saying, hey, man, I really appreciate you. I feel valued. And I could play and replay that for two months in my head. I feel, I feel valued again because I remember what she said or what he said, that I was important to them. 
what we say can make an incredible difference. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 3, he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Now, this is one to say to your youngins, boy, better guard your mouth. You're going you're gonna to find destruction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring destruction. That's with my seven-year-old. Watch your lips. We say it to our kids sometimes, like, but we forget to say it to our own selves. We should be especially careful with our words when we come into the house of God. And this is where we can get careless and forget because what starts off as like friendly banter can quickly just lead to gossip or tearing one another down, breaking apart another spirit. How many of you have ever heard someone say they left God because they were hurt in the church? Now, I'm not excusing that because what I say to someone who says that is you can't, you can't leave a perfect God because of imperfect people. Because that's what we have in the church. Imperfect people, at least me. But it is because of that that we have to be so careful. They left the church, or they left God because of something that they, they say they were hurt in the church. Well, were they physically beat up by the pastor or Sunday school teacher? Probably not. Hopefully not. <laughs> and then you really need to leave that church. But no, they were beat up by words. Most of the time when you get, you say, well, I was really hurt in church, it was because that person was hurt by the mouth of somebody else. And it broke them, and it pulled them from God. So we have to be careful when we come into the house of God to keep our hearts reverent and our tongues in control. We can't do this on our own. We can't just force our own selves. I know I can't anyway. Can't make myself talk right the way I'm supposed to. I've got to give it to God. Say, Holy Spirit, you take my tongue. Let me show you how important words are. I grew up in a town called Anderson Township. I don't know if anybody knows it. It's in Cincinnati, down real close to the river next to Coney Island. And um, down there is the Forest Hill School District. Now, I only went to the public school system until my third grade. So I, it didn't impact me as much as some of my neighbors. But I did grow up around there. My neighbors and later my coworkers had children in the Forest Hill School District. In 2017, a demonic spirit of suicide swept through the Forest Hill School District. And um, a lot of people that I knew were really, really impacted. Seven children died in a very short period of time. Two were within weeks of each other. That was a friend of mine's friends, they were devastated. It's tragic. It is awful. And you think, why? What causes this? I understand the demonic spiritual part, sort of, like I know that there's that to it, but what gets that there? What gets it to the point where a child cannot take any more and they feel the only way out is to take their own life. That breaks 
my heart. Teens, young adults, and children, they have it rough today. It's hard in school. They're up against a lot more than we were. And it's little words. Little words on top of little words on top of little words. That is often the cause. A harsh joke, hateful comment from their peers, discouragement. Little words usually on social media because it's pretty easy to say something hateful here because it's a lot harder to say something hateful here. Those little words start piling up on those hearts, and that gives the demonic spirit the foothold. That lets it in the door. And in a short amount of time, seven children were taken by that spirit. Because especially when it hits the schools, it's usually very rare that it's a one and done. That's, that demonic spirit is not finished until it has devastated the school system, devastated the families. It's horrible. But just like little words can be the cause for the foot in the door, little words can slam that door. Little words of encouragement, little words of love, little words, most importantly, from the Word of God itself. If there are students in here, I want to talk to you for a minute. You're in the thick of it. You can be the change. Teachers, faculty, they're not allowed to say a whole lot. They may know the Word of God, but they're not allowed to preach it. But you can. You can speak it. You can save the lives of your friends through encouraging words. Words are important. They can save a person's life. They're not as little as we assume. What would happen if you found one person this week, one person to purposely speak life into? How would that change your week? How would that change your Thanksgiving? How would it change your life or the lives of your loved ones if you were to choose your words more carefully starting tonight? If you were to give your tongue to the Holy Spirit and say, I want you to take my tongue starting now. How, what would happen? Just think, what would change in my life if my words were seasoned with grace? Would sin start to follow out? Would those sin strongholds kind of walk away? The Bible says, yeah. He says, that bit in the mouth, I can take control of the sin problem when you give me your mouth. So I want to talk about little sin for a minute there. Genesis 3, we read about the first sin, and it seems really small. Adam and Eve live in paradise. They live in the Garden of Eden, and God has told them they can eat from any tree, any fruit in the garden except one. And then you know the story. Eve is deceived by the serpent, who is Satan, and then she eats. That seems like a really small, insignificant sin, does it not? She just ate fruit, God. It's actually not considered a sin anymore. We think that, right? Like chocolate. If it was a chocolate tree, I could see why she was in trouble. 
But it wasn't the fact that she was eating fruit. It was the fact that she chose to disobey God's command. That's sin. It seemed really small, insignificant, and yet it brought into God's perfect paradise destruction and death. And Satan continues to use that same deception today on all of us. He can ensnare you into a trap of slavery because you may be tempted or I may be tempted to sin because we imagine there's very little harm in this. It's hardly a sin anymore. It's not really hurting anyone. Sin, even the small ones that we think is not a big deal, just like the disobedience in the garden, always lead to death. What if Eve were to have, like, been able to, like, fast forward in her mind into the future? And as she was holding that fruit, she would have been able to see that in the future... Her act of disobedience was going to bring in her family. One sin, one son was going to kill another son. Mamas in the room, think about that for a second. I've got two, I got three boys. I couldn't imagine the heartache Eve went through when one of her babies killed the other baby. Wow. If she could have just been able to fast forward when she was standing there with that fruit, that seems like not a big deal. Just a little disobedience. And if she would have been able to see what it was going to cause, the death and the destruction that was going to come to her family with this one small act of disobedience. What would it have changed? Thick. <laughs> it's thick. King Solomon wrote in the Bible, catch us the little foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. We have often lost the beautiful things in our lives because of the little foxes. I've talked about before how I love to plant things and garden. And I right now have a grapevine on my mantle. (laughs) Because I've got it at the end of the season. It's really small. It's like that big. It's small. And I bought it at the end of the season. If I were to plant it outside right now, or even when I first got it, it's going to die. It's too tender. It'll never give me grapes. Because even just a cold wind will kill it, will destroy it. So I keep it inside where I can keep an eye on it and I can... Water it when it needs to, and hopefully I'll give you an update that it's got grapes eventually. But it's too tender right now. Our souls are the same way. They're tender. Any amount of sin will ruin it, destroy us, even the seemingly small stuff. It doesn't matter if you gave your heart to God yesterday or if you've been in the faith for 20 years, small sin will bring death and destruction to your soul either way. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, the greatest sin in the world repented of shall be forgiven. That's why we need God's grace, because I can't be perfect enough. I'm going to have that small sin. I'm going to fall into that small sin, but thank God I've got the grace of God, because it doesn't matter if I have murdered someone or just been angry. 
and sinned in my anger. It doesn't matter which sin. If I repent of it, it is gone. Jesus takes it. But he also wrote, the least unrepented sin shall sink you lower than the lowest hell. We tend to get in our minds that it doesn't matter. It's just a little sin. I don't need to repent of that one. I don't need to bring that one to Jesus. I don't need to give it to Jesus. I can continue in this because it's really not hurting anybody. That's the danger in that. We then lose our most beautiful and valuable things in our lives because we've let in the little foxes. Proverbs 4.27 says, Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your feet away from evil. And again, Spurgeon wrote, The very best of men have always been afraid of little sins. And that confused me when I first read that. I had to read it like over and over. What in the world? The very best of men. Okay, the very best men have been afraid of sin. What do you mean? And then I kept reading, and it was, um, example is Daniel. Now, Daniel in the Bible, he was taken off to Babylon, and he prayed every day, three times a day, windows open, caring not that anybody sees that he loves God, right? He was just... I pray to God. But then the king, the king those days, they were they used to be really haughty and really puffed up. They still are today, right? But he made this decree that you can only pray if you're going to pray to me. Daniel then went out, opened his windows three times a day, and prayed. He was more afraid of stepping even slightly to the right or to the left of righteousness than he was of the mouth of lions. If it were me, I'm going to be real honest. I would have been like, I'm going to pray silently today, God. Or I just may not I'll crack the window. He was more afraid of even stepping one way or the other of his disobedience towards God. He didn't want to do that. He said, I'll take on the mouths of those lions. I'm not going to even come close to disobeying God. We would have been like, God knows my heart. Did the king see? Okay, good. But Daniel, you know, he, he was like, I don't care what you've said. I'm not disobeying God. Today, our society, we wink at some of the same things that the Bible tells us to run from. He says, flee from that. And we go, well, okay, I'm running. TV shows that even in the 90s where it'd be like, uh-uh, no, you never talk about that. You never do that. You don't watch that. We now brag about our engagement with. I looked that up. It's quite common. Swearing and crude talk used to be considered like, eh, you didn't really hear that in public or on the radio. Now it's considered cool even in the church house, even from the pulpit. The cussing pastor. Not ours, thank God. But if you haven't heard him, He's considered cool because he can relate and he can swear. Just walking a little bit over here to the right or to the left of that righteousness. Just getting a little bit closer to the world. Just a little sin. Sexual immorality and promiscuity is considered normal everywhere, even in the church. Eh, 
it's okay. Let's not talk about it. Let's not address it from the pulpit. I, again, thank God that our pastor does. He preaches the word. Even when other people go, I don't like that, that hurts. Well, it's the word. We, we can't be afraid to preach it because people will die and go to hell and we've not said it. This can't be normal. What would your life look like? What would my life look like? life look like if rather than justifying those small sins, justifying just a little bit, we gave it over to God. We did what the Word says. We confessed with our mouths and said, I don't want even the small things. I want to turn that TV off or at least turn it because I'm not going to have even the small sins, even the winked at sins in my household. What would change in your life? recognizing that even those small sins really need a big Savior because we can't do it on our own. We can't be good enough. We can't just do things right. I have to give all of my sin to Jesus. I need a really big Savior for even the seemingly small sins. And that brings me to my next point, a little humility. Jesus was once invited to a dinner by a Pharisee named Simon. I want to clarify Pharisee because sometimes in the church, I feel like we throw around words like Pharisee and Sadducee and, and you know, and high seas and everything else. And, like, we're like, what does that mean? The Pharisee would be like a leader in the church. His name is Simon. So think of, like, going to maybe Pastor Dallas's church or, or Brother Dale Cain's house over for dinner. He's invited you for dinner. So now you got that in your head. You're sitting there at dinner. During the course of the meal, a sinful woman, perhaps not even invited, enters the banquet hall. Let me clarify that. She's not just, oh, that's a sinner. No, she's a prostitute. She's a known prostitute. Could you imagine? Now put yourself at that dinner table. You're sitting there. There's Jesus over there. There's Pastor Dallas over there. And if I may, there's Brother Dale Kane over here. And you're sitting there at this dinner, and in walks a very well-known prostitute. What are you thinking? Pastor? <laughs> you have something to say? Tell us. She goes right by all those people. She feels so unworthy, but she falls at the feet of Jesus. She begins to pour ointment on Jesus' feet, and she's crying, and she's wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she can't be covered with her own. She can't take care of it herself. She goes to Jesus, and she just kneels down. <sighs> She gave her heart to Jesus right there, and they got to witness it. How amazing. But he doesn't think of it that way. Simon, the leader, he's, he starts thinking in his heart, well, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what manner of woman he, it is who's touching him. Knowing his thoughts, Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. He says, goes into a parable. He says, Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Let's put that in layman's terms for me. A lot? A little. 
Neither of them could pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more, the one that owed a lot or a little? And then Simon, he thought it was pretty clear. He said, I suppose the one that had the bigger debt. What did that mean? Did that mean that she loves him more than we do because the prostitute had the bigger sin? Nope. But she recognized her sin. The point here is that when you see yourself, when we see ourselves as little sinners, we have a little Savior. But when we recognize that all of our sin, no matter what it is, I can do nothing about, we have a great Savior. Moreover, those who view themselves with an attitude of humility are those who God can also do the most through. Gideon, in the Old Testament, said, Lord, I'm of the least of my people. I'm, I'm little. And God took him. He had that humility, and he used him to become a great warrior for Israel, and he became a judge. David said, I'm just a shepherd boy. In Psalms, he compares himself to a gnat. How many of you have ever compared your own self to a gnat? Not me. God took that shepherd boy who saw himself as just a shepherd boy, and he made him king of Israel. Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles. Paul became the greatest missionary ever to walk the earth. He turned the world around for Jesus, but he didn't see himself as something great. Um, there's a quote from Martin Luther. He says, my, my thing just jumped on me, and I'm like, no, come back. Martin Luther said, God creates from nothing. So until we become nothing, God can do nothing with us. He tells us in the Bible that King Saul had started off, he said, when, I, when you saw yourself as small in your own eyes, I made you leader. But when he got full of pride, he brought him down to the lowest of lows. He took him off the throne. God can do so much with us when we recognize, don't justify, recognize and repent of little sins. Give him our tongue, little things. And we go, God, I just need you because I need a big Savior. I need a big Savior. Matthew 18.3 says, except you be converted as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And there brings little people, little children. They're funny. Little, little ones you spend much time with, they're funny. They're so cute. And they don't consider themselves, like, so great. They're just walking around. <laughs> My little daughter, she, like, dances everywhere she goes. I'm like, you guys get in there and clean your room. Okay. <laughs> Twirling's her big thing lately. But she doesn't see herself as some, I'm so great. And she loves God so much. And she loves people. 
And he says that we should be like that. We should be like that. Isaiah 40, 12, little people, God, we're talking about God, who has gathered the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand. I want you to pull out your hand. Just look at your hand. You see that little, like, indented palm part? That is the hollow of your hand. How much water can you hold in that? Some of you, probably most of you more than me, but not a whole lot of water in that. God holds all of them. All of them in his hand. Now, pull out your hand and kind of measure the screen with your hand. If you're closer to it, you're like me, you can't really measure it. He measures the heavens with the span of his hand. Now, I'm going to get a little nerdy and geeky on you here. I'm a homeschool teacher. <laughs> And we've been studying astronomy, and it's fascinating. I love it. On Mondays, I get to go to the co-ops where I have, like, the 8, 9, and 10-year-olds, and I did this with them, and it was like, wow. It was the only time that they were quiet. And it was great. They were like, whoa, God is huge. The equilateral circumference of the earth is about 24,901 miles. I told you I was going to get real nerdy on you. Our solar system is so big, scientists use something called an aeronautical, nope, an astronomical unit, an AU, which is 93 million miles for one AU. Do you, can you wrap your head around that? You got that visual? Me neither. It, it doesn't work out. Can I get that first picture up here? We need to talk about this in football fields. That is about the best I can fathom. Well, I don't know if we got a picture up here. So I'll just talk it through. According to NASA, if our solar system was a football field, the sun, which is the biggest thing in our solar system, if we were to try to do, and I, I did do this with my kids, I did, to, my, I did by toilet paper. If this is the sun, we need 93 toilet paper squares and we made them count it out and everything. If we were going to do the sun, it's like, I would like, this is the building. And that wouldn't quite even get it. So the sun is huge, right? The next biggest thing in our solar system is Jupiter. I told you my kid loves Jupiter. And it would be like a watermelon. So picture watermelon outside, like next to the building. That's the sun. The sun is huge. Okay? It's on the football field. So now let's picture that that sun is on the football field that called the solar system. The sun is about the size of a dime now. A dime. Earth and the inner planets would only be within the first three yards of the goal line, and they're approximately the size of the grain of sand in that football field. Wow. There's Jupiter. I can't see it either. Here we are. That little grain of sand. Now, so the, the football field is our solar system. Let's try to grasp and illustrate the Milky Way galaxy. See, we know of 125 billion galaxies in the known universe, and we live in only one of them. We call it the Milky Way. I want to know why. That's weird. Tastes good. Louis Giglio described it this way. 
Imagine the Milky Way galaxy is just our subdivision. Here we are, there's the Milky Way galaxy. It's our subdivision inside the football field. Okay? We've got a football field inside the subdivision is how this is going to work out. And to compare it, the Milky Way galaxy, according to the universe, would be the size of the North American continent. No, the galaxy is the size, yeah, the size of the, of the North American continent, and our solar system is the size, the football field is the size of a quarter next to the North American continent. Now, inside our subdivision is our solar system. Um, do we have that up? I'm going to show you where we are. We're not even in the center of our own solar system. See the, can everybody see the point, the, the, the arrow pointing? Do you see what it's pointing to? Me neither. It's pointing to us. We're not even in the center of our own subdivision. There we are. And then there's our football field. And we are a grain of sand on the football field somewhere in that dot. Wow. Are you feeling small? You are. Wow. If God can measure the galaxies and the universe with the span of his hand, how big is that God that you pray to? This is amazing. How small are you? Can you find you on the dot? I asked you at the beginning if you've ever felt small. And now I have proven to you that you are. You're welcome. <laughs> Man, she's awful. But I also asked if you felt insignificant and ignored. The thing is, it is really good to recognize our smallness next to God. It's good to recognize and be in awe of the God of the universe. Because that's where our humility comes. We go, wow, I'm, I'm now starting to understand David calling himself a gnat. I get it. God is so big but it doesn't mean you're insignificant. It doesn't mean you're ignored. And it's because the God of the universe came down to Bethlehem, was born in a stable, placed in a manger. Let me explain a manger. It's a feeding trough. And those are nasty. I know my brother put me in one. <laughs> Kid you not. And my sister in love, she's back there. She did it too. She helped. They threw me in. It was nasty. And yet, God of the universe sent his only begotten son to be put into that nasty thing. Why? So that we could kill him on a cross. So he could be nailed to that cross to take our small and our great sins and our shame. The God of the universe did that for you. He did that for me. And now, although I feel small, I feel so, so loved because I realize how small I am and how great he is, and yet he still cares for me. 
I realize what a sinner I am, that even my greatest righteousness is as filthy rags as him, and yet he still loves me. He died on the cross for your sins. He lay, stayed there three days in the, in, the, in the grave for me and for you. He knows your name. He knows your life. You're not insignificant, and you're not ignored. Maybe Prince William and Kate Middleton just don't know your name or don't know you exist, but the God of the universe does, and he loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. Ah, that's amazing. Wow. God, Yahweh, is huge. Isaiah 66 tells us that heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. And that's good news because I need a big Savior. He knows what's going on in your life. Suddenly, I realize that this great God of the universe is the one that listens to me when I pray, no matter how small the prayer is. If it's just a, a whispered, Jesus... In desperation, he listens. He's paying attention to little me and my small little prayer. Or sometimes when things are really rough, I may go, God, I pray. Because I don't know what else to say. God, I pray. And I am praying to that great God of the universe. I'm praying to him. And he listens to my small prayer. Amazing. And suddenly, my problem doesn't seem so big. When I'm praying to him, my anxiety doesn't seem so big. Suddenly, my depression seems small. My loneliness seems small. My, my marital problems, my financial trouble, any trouble I may come across. We do not have marital trouble. But any problem you're going to come across, it is suddenly small in light of God and his goodness. It is small, and I can come down on my knees, and I can give that to, over to God because he cares about it. He cares about the little things. Wow, he cares about just the small things. I gave you that rope because I want you to walk away remembering you're small, and yet he cares for me. And we're small, but we can do great things with God. God cares about the little things. What would happen if we did too? What if we dedicated just a few more minutes of our time with him? What if we didn't justify our small sins but just gave them to God? What if we started caring for the small people like he does? I'm getting ready to close. And if you would, uh, come to the music. I want to open the altars, and I want us to pray. First of all, I never want to end and close a service without inviting you. If you don't have him in your heart, if you don't have that relationship with this amazing God, he is here. His Holy Spirit is here right now, and I would like for you, everybody just close your eyes and bow your head, and if that's you, you